Before I read the scripture, 1 Corinthians 8, I'm going to give some background on, on it as I've done before. The scripture, part of Apostles Paul, letter to the church in Corinthians, will come within my sermon. So again, keep in mind that the sermon isn't actually longer. It's just that the scripture is within it. Let me also say up front that I have gotten permission from individuals I name in the examples I use. Paul wrote to the early church of Corinth, which was probably started around 50 CE. The Greek city of Corinth was a bustling sea town that provided considerable wealth for many, yet there was also a large working class and many people living in poverty. There were also a wide variety of religions or cults that had many different practices along with them. Now, a fair number of the new believers were Jewish, but most came from pagan or different religious backgrounds. For them, learning to worship one God through Jesus Christ was a very new concept because in the ancient world it was not uncommon to be members of a variety of cults or religions. So for those from within Judaism who worshipped the one God, worshipping with newly converted pagans was strange. Melding these two groups was challenging, as was melding the various educational levels, formative backgrounds, and different social classes. There were conflicts and problems. Imagine that. In Corinthians 8, Paul is responding to a letter that was first written to him concerning a dispute about eating meat that had first been offered as a sacrifice to other gods and idols. In the ancient world, in cities like Corinth, it was often very difficult to find meat that had not first been offered to idols. Many temples had a sort of meat market going on and often sold the animals and meat on site. Plus, someone had figured out that the gods preferred the entrails, so the organs and intestines and fat were offered up and the rest of the meat was sold. (laughs) This is how most Corinthians got their meat, because purchasing meat that had been offered to idols was rare to find and came at an exorbitantly high price. There was also a social life centered around the various religious religious holidays where banquets were held at the temples after the sacrifices had been offered. Now this is important because at these banquets, people could often eat meat for free if they had been invited. And for many, eating meat was a luxury. So it was in deep felt conviction and great personal sacrifice that many new Christians from pagan backgrounds felt and believed that eating meat that had been offered to other idols and gods was terribly wrong. It was sinful, a desecration of themselves and blasphemous to God. Yet within Judaism... It was not uncommon to eat the meat that was first offered to God. In fact, this is how much of the priestly class got their meat. Moreover, their strong belief in one true God made them see 
eating meat that had been offered to other gods and idols as inconsequential because these idols and gods didn't even exist. And then some new converts also began to adapt this outlook. Eating meat that had first been offered to idols was a very real dispute. Listen to the word of the Lord from The Message, a wonderful and very accurate translation by Presbyterian scholar and minister Eugene Peterson. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3, which is titled Freedom with Responsibility. Paul's letter. The question keeps coming up regarding meat that has been offered to an idol. Should you attend meals where such meat is served or not? We sometimes tend to think we know all we need to know to answer these kind of questions, but sometimes our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds. We never really know enough until we recognize that God alone knows it all. Some people say, quite rightly, that idols have no actual existence, that there's nothing to them, that there is no God other than our one God, that no matter how many of these so-called gods are named and worshipped, they still don't add up to anything but a tall story. They say, again, quite rightly, that there is only one God, the Father, and that everything comes from him, and that he wants us to live for him. Also, they say that there is only one master, Jesus, the Messiah, and everything is for his sake, including us. Yes, it's true. In logic, then, nothing happened to the meat when it was offered up to an idol. It's just like any other meat. I know that, and you know that. But knowing isn't everything. If it becomes everything, some people end up as know-it-alls who treat others as know-nothings. Real knowledge isn't that insensitive. We need to be sensitive to the fact that we're not all at the same level of understanding in this. Some of you have spent your entire lives eating idle meat and are sure there's something bad in the meat that then becomes something bad inside of you. In imagination and conscience shaped under these conditions isn't going to change overnight. But fortunately, God doesn't grade us on our diet. We're neither commended when we clean our plate nor reprimanded when we just can't stomach it. But God does care when you use your freedom carelessly in a way that leads a fellow believer still vulnerable to those old associations to be thrown off track. For instance, Satan flaunts your freedom by going to a banquet thrown in honor of idols where the main course is meat sacrificed to idols. Isn't there a great danger if someone's still struggling over this issue, someone who looks up to you as knowledgeable and mature, sees you going into that banquet? The danger is that he will become terribly confused, maybe even to the point of getting mixed up himself in what his conscience tells him is wrong. Christ gave up his life for that person. Wouldn't you at least be willing to give up going to dinner for him? Because, as you say, it doesn't really make any difference. 
But it does make a difference if you hurt your friend terribly, risking his eternal ruin. <clears throat> when you hurt your friend, you hurt A friend here and there isn't worth it at the cost of even those weak ones. So never go to those idol-tainted meals if there's any chance it will trip up one of your brothers and sisters. The word of the Lord. This past Thursday morning, Jin Hung, our seminary guest from Korea, came with me to Westminster Canterbury to the monthly Bible study I lead on the fourth Thursday of each month, to which any of you is also invited. I usually center the study on the next text I will be preaching on, which is very helpful and enlightening to me, and I hope those attending. Little did we know how enlightening and lively it would be this time. We began with a prayer, and then I then explained that we'd first read the passage from the NRSV the New Revised Standard Version, which is found in our pews. And then I'd read from the message, which I explained was a translation and paraphrase of the Bible by Eugene Peterson, which I just read. And that's when trouble began. Someone asked me why I'd be using a paraphrase and not a true and reputable version of the Bible. And if I had to choose another version besides the NRSV, why not the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, or perhaps the New Jerusalem Bible or Phillips? I attempted to explain that the message was a very reputable translation while not getting too defensive. But the topic was out of the gate. And the discussion quickly quickly heated up because in that room were many people who loved the message. Now lately I've been reading a bit of John Calvin, our 16th century theologian for my class, my church school class, and I all of a sudden had this fleeting and fearful thought that this could quickly digress into the ways of Calvin, who was known to call those who disagreed with him barking dogs, or insane. (laughs) But we were saved by a newcomer, a man from Trinity Presbyterian, who jumped in to explain the complexities of translating a language, particularly ancient ones, which he did in a very calm and knowledgeable manner, while at the same time showing love and respect and admitting that he too used the message. There was a pause, smiles, a bit of nervous laughter, and I went on to read the passage from the NSRV, which is a bit more difficult to understand. Afterwards, one woman asked how this could be applicable to today's world. There were a few comments, and we proceeded to read from the message. After this reading, someone explained that we were actually living out this passage right here in the room with our disputes about what version of the Bible to read. Another person likened the passage to when one might be around a newly recovering alcoholic and how one wouldn't, or at least shouldn't, purposely drink in front of them. 
Still others mention the church disputes over serving wine or grape juice for communion. Jin Hung shared how in Korea, the Presbyterian Christians, and especially pastors, don't drink at all. At which point we could all agree we wouldn't order a glass of wine if we were dining out in Korea with other Christians. Later, Jin shared that he was so surprised that Christians here enjoy a glass of wine or beer, and he had noticed a big poster at Westminster Canterbury advertising a cocktail hour. (laughs) And with a big smile, he shared how when he got to Robert Johnson's house, his first host home, he was shocked to see a wine rack and even bourbon. And he thought, Robert's a minister? Yet he couldn't have been in a better home as Robert pastorally handled the issue and wanted to know the whys and wherefores of the issue in Korea. Jin quickly came to appreciate the Vermeer Johnson household and all the hospitality that has been shown to him from so many others. And I might add that we who have had the privilege of being around him have certainly grown in our faith and had eyes opened anew. The conversation continued, and I decided to share a story from a recent conversation I had with my 28-year-old son, Kyle, who lives in Denver. In an uncanny and timely phone call, That came a few days ago when I had actually just gotten off the website of the Fellowship of Presbyterians who gathered in Orlando in January. A group formed after the passage of Amendment 10A, which made room for the ordination of homosexuals. In Orlando, over 2,000 Presbyterians representing more than 500 congregations from 49 states, gathered for a conference to talk about their future involvement in our denomination. There they emphasized the fellowship's commitment to offer support and structure for congregations choosing to stay within the PCUSA, for those who are undecided, and for those that are choosing to leave us. This is a big deal that will continue to be worked out. So back to the story. Kyle calls me, and I'll clean up the language so as not to offend anyone. And he says, Have I talked to you since I joined that Denver Recreation basketball team? No, I talked to you Wednesday just before you were going to play. How'd it go? Got my butt kicked, he replied. And then I decided to attend a 6.15 a.m. Bible study the next morning that my new roommates are part of with some other guys. There's about seven or eight of us. Great guys. But all of them go to more conservative churches than me. I couldn't hold back a chuckle. He replied, not something to laugh about at the time. I was barely awake when they announced the scripture to look up. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Okay, I replied. I said, and he replied, come on, Mom, 1 Timothy 2. 
I said, help me out. (laughs) And he shot back, you know, the one about women in the church. Oh, that one. (laughs) I've repressed those verses. He goes on, yeah, well, I'm beat. Dead tired, barely awake, with only two sips of coffee in me, and we turn our Bibles to these verses, and I'm instantly awake. Look them up, he says. So I pull them up on my computer screen and read them out loud and slow down when I get to let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived by the woman, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Oh my gosh, what did you do? Uh huh, said Kyle. Here I am with a bunch of new friends and we're reading this, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, why God? Why the heck are you doing this to me? Chuckling again, I asked, so what'd you do? Well, I took another sip of coffee, cleared my throat, and said, um, before we get started here, I've got to be up front with you and make a disclosure. All eyes were on me then, and I said, I got to tell you, my mom's an ordained Presbyterian minister, working as as an associate pastor at a pretty big and cool church in downtown Richmond, Virginia. There was total silence, he said. I mean total silence, and they looked at me like I had three eyes, kind of shifty, looking up and down at me. Then one of the guys says, Are you kidding? And Kyle said, come on, no. Why would I do that? And then all heck broke loose with exclamations like, I've never really known a woman minister, have you? All but one person hadn't besides Kyle. So that guy says, last year I heard a woman preach for the first time. It was weird, but she was pretty good. Others said things like, wow, I don't know what that would be like. So Kyle said, well, for me, it'd be odd not to have a woman minister. Since the earliest I can remember, I've always been at a church where there were ordained women ministers and women helping to lead worship. Again, a bunch of wows. And they went on to have an in-depth discussion about culture and how it plays out in the Bible. And then the questions and observations about how the various versions they had were all a bit different. And then one of the guys shared he had read this scripture with his wife the night before, and she wasn't too keen or pleased with the Adam and Eve part. So I asked, well, did you tell them you thought Adam and Eve weren't necessarily literal figures? And he shot back. Come on, Mom. Jeez. Why would I do that? You wanted me to, you wanted me to blow them out of the water? <laughs> and then he added, and accusingly added and said to me, You would have, wouldn't you? You'd have blown them out of the water. And I slowly said, No, not intentionally. 
I sure hope not. But at your age, at 28, yeah, I wouldn't have just blown them out of the water. I would have been a tsunami. (laughs) Nice, was his sarcastic remark. (laughs) Most of us could relate and can relate to Kyle's story in one way or another. And Jin shared that in his Presbyterian denomination in Korea, it was just in 1994 that women could be ordained. Learning and growing in knowledge is important. Gaining greater biblical and theological knowledge is a good thing. But the crux of the matter is in how we use our knowledge. Do we let knowledge itself become an idol? Do we use it to build up the body of Christ to help God's world? Or do we too often use our knowledge to tear it down? It is so easy and often surprising how quickly we can get into areas of disagreement that tear our brothers and sisters in Christ down. Please hear, though, that I'm not saying one never should take a stand. We are called to do so at times. But the spirit in how we do so makes a difference. Knowing isn't everything, says Paul. Being right isn't the most important thing. How we treat each other matters, because when we hurt one another, we hurt Christ. May we be about the business of building up the body of Christ. May it be so. Amen. Will you please join me together in the prayer of commitment? Found in your bulletins. Free us again, Lord, to live and serve you with our best selves. Empower us to help and assist each other in work and service. Lord, make our hearts places of peace and our mind harbors of tranquility. Sow in our souls true love for you and for one another. Strengthen bonds of faith and friendship. Give us reverence, purpose, and peace so we may give peace to each other and to the world. God of light and hope, Kindle within our hearts today a flame of love for our neighbors, for our foes, for our friends, for our church members, for the brave, for the cowardly, for the thoughtless, and for the needy. Use us for good work, for your reign near and far. Amen.